welcome to In Search of Black Power. I'm your host, Lawrence Cranpree. The 2020 election is, at least in theory, behind us. While the nation continues to wait for the formal inauguration of Joseph Robinette Biden, the rest of the results are pretty clear. And while the Democratic Party was successful in taking back the presidency, it appears that the lead in the House of Representatives the Democrats have is extremely, extremely slim with the Democrats losing critical swing seats that their initial polling before the election told them they were in a strong position to win. This led to much consternation and soul-searching among establishment Democrats, with many of them blaming Black Lives Matter in general, but specifically the call to hashtag defund the police as the reason many wary suburban Democrats chose not to support the Democratic Party down ballot. This, of course, was met with a strong rebuke by Twitter activists and other folks who have framed the hashtag defund the police narrative in the national media at the referendum on the suffering of black people who have been killed at the hands of the police and have a righteous desire to create some sort of punishment for what they perceive as police impunity in the face of continuous violence upon black and brown communities. Hearing this conversation, I couldn't help but wonder, despite our longtime support of police accountability here at In Search of Black Power and Leaders of Beautiful Struggle, whether this debate wasn't missing critical elements of the experiences that we have gained over the past six years talking about alternatives to policing here in Baltimore, whether the conversations we've had with working-class black and brown people around their concerns, many of them very well-founded and needing to be addressed around hashtag defund the police, were getting any credence at all in the mainstream left narrative on the issue, or whether they were being summarily dismissed as the concerns of conservative old fogies who had internalized the logic of the police. This led me to reach out to our longtime friend and supporter of the In Search of Black Power podcast, the Mix What I Like Collective, and specifically Jared Ball, to do a conversation on his I Mix What I Like live YouTube feed on the limitations of the current framing of the defund the police argument, how our experiences here in Baltimore had given us some concepts about how to expand the frame of defund the police to address critical concerns among those who might be skeptical around the issue, and thinking about really a larger conversation of how do we create movements, how do we fund our movements, how do we frame our politics in a way that creates the possibility for radical change and victories for defund the police and beyond. So we will address Obama, but this talk is really more focused on how we think about movements in general, movement infrastructure, who is being empowered to frame and quote-unquote lead these movements in the national media, how they got there, why the way they framed their argument could be reflected by the elite institutions or elite power brokers who positioned them to be in these large national media conversations. And what are the things these conversations might be missing? Things that we hear a lot at the grassroots level here in Baltimore that could be an alternative and we feel more fruitful, more nuanced and productive starting point for not just defund the police, but for radical advocacy more generally. So this is a conversation I had with Jared Ball in the second week of December 2020. 
We hope that this finds you well as we continue to hopefully enjoy our holidays in the midst of a continued pandemic here in America. And with that, we'll get right to the recording. All right. What's up, world? Welcome back again to another edition of I Mix What I Like Live. Again, I'm Jared Ball. Happy to be your host. Please check us out at I Mix What I Like for all your relevant social media and I Mix What I Like dot org for all this and more. Again, paying tribute to what is uh, the anniversary of the assassination of Fred Hampton and, and Mark Clark and the Black Panther Party and to the associated politics. Uh, please do check uh, uh, when after this. Please do go back and check uh, the interview we just did with Daruba bin Wahad, uh, putting all of that assassination in politics and into today's context. Uh, and please do join me in welcoming now the current uh, uh, director of research for Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, Lawrence Grand Prix, who uh, I've had the pleasure of working with and knowing for some time and who does a lot of great work as a member of Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle in Baltimore and who uh, is going to lead us in this, this conversation and critique uh, of the the uh, current approach to uh, defund the police. So, uh, Lawrence, first of all, welcome. Thanks again for, for joining us. And uh, please tell us a little bit about what it is you would like to discuss and, what and, and maybe a little bit about the work LBS is doing that brings you to this mm-hmm. particular concern. Yeah, thank you for having me. So LBS is a grassroots think tank out of Baltimore. Uh, we're not like a traditional think tank. <laughs> we're not a nonprofit. We do direct community organizing, direct political engagement. Um, a lot of it's just sort of lobbying, but not for a client, for the causes we think should be advocated for, given our relationships with the community. So in that role, we've been engaging on conversations around alternatives to policing really for probably about the past five or six years. And because of that, when the current call to defund police popped up, uh, frankly, a lot of us were very frustrated because so much of the nuance that is happening at the grassroots level is completely absent from the national conversation, especially the national Twitter conversation. And it actually made me think of this quote from Kwame Ture, which I literally just transcribed yesterday because I listened to his talk and I thought this is perfect because I think it describes what's happening here, both on the side of the Obama defund the police is a snappy phrase that turns people off and the Twitter BLM defund the police if you don't like it, you're racist type of thinking. Kwame Ture said, the capitalist system lets you think you can think about something without being involved in that which you are thinking about. In fact, they let you think that you are thinking. Unless you're involved with that which you are thinking about, you can't think about it. If I ask the question, do you want our people to advance, every hand must go up. But then you ask, how many of you are involved in the struggle to, do, to advance the people's causes? Hands will go down. But those who are not involved in the people's struggles, they still think they are thinking about the people's struggle. Don't fool yourself into thinking that capitalism is letting you think you're thinking about your people. The capitalist system makes people stupid, then makes them arrogant in their stupidity, not only do they not know, but they do not want to know. 
And quite frankly, I feel like this quote can apply to both sides of what has become this extremely weird for someone like me who's been doing this on the ground, national debate over defund the police. So let's just take the Obama side for a second. First of all, Obama has no qualifications to speak on political strategy around defund the police. He's he's gotten elected federally, which is great. The federal government has no role in police budgets, almost none. It is almost entirely a state and local issue. He was never a local lawmaker. He was never a mayor. He was a state senator. Again, he never controlled a police budget a day in his life. But let's understand what's happening here. Obama was a community organizer, quote unquote, in Chicago for a few years. But his experience of community organizing is really from what is really a large community organizing entity and something that is probably more affiliated with the black church, more mainstream, essentially a power broker between the capitalist real estate entities and the community. He thinks he's fighting gentrification by demanding uh, basically a small community payout and goes to things like after school programming. And he advances things like, for example, moderate criminal justice reform. An example of this would be this thing called the Justice Reinvestment Act, which was sold to community activists as we're going to defund the prison system by deincarcerating the prison system and reinvesting communities. But people like him and the Center for American Progress pushed that. What it actually did, it did not deincarcerate at all. And to the extent that they reinvested money, they just reinvested it in their friends who were just in a different part of the prison system because they didn't know any grassroots people to give money to. And when you actually push radical police reform or radical prison reform, radical criminal justice reform, they say we can't do that because we just did Justice Reinvestment Act. So his experience of politics is this centrist compromise, and he never needs to have a radical sloganeering, radical politics to advance any of that. So he thinks he's thinking about politics when he says, I know politics. That's not how this works. When he's never, ever been in the position to push a demand like defund the police. Um, so briefly on the flip side, because I fear Kwame Torres analysis applies to not everyone in the so-called movement for black lives, because I guess we're kind of part of that, too. But the dominant mainstream conversation on this so-called defund the police argument is basically 90 percent critique of police. 10% hate as an alternative. Don't accuse me of not having an alternative. Mm. But if you actually want working class black and brown people to trust you, you not only need to flip that and really talk 70, 80% about what your alternative actually is, working class people need to see you on the ground every day for years, building and build, pushing that alternative. The problem is doing that work at a local level is kind of seen as like small ball politics. It doesn't get you viral on Twitter. It doesn't get you a book deal. It doesn't get you tenure. It doesn't get you the sort of accoutrements of celebrity activism that many of these people want. So we're having them target the defund police conversation to a federal lawmaker like Obama or a federal conversation when the entire issue of policing, we all know, is funded through localities. So working class black and brown people see that. They see that you're not in the community when they're pushing for things like minority contracting to get grassroots people jobs. They even don't see some of these people, which stuns me, in the conversations around cannabis legalization. You would think that people like BLM would be all over cannabis legalization. So it's not only an economic opportunity, it's an opportunity to put tax revenue from legal cannabis back in the community for reparations for war on drugs. But the people fighting these issues don't see a lot of these Black Lives Matter activists at their state houses to fight these bills. It's gotten so bad that California's cannabis legalization bill actually put more money into police through the cannabis revenues. 
And again, the defund the police crowd was nowhere to be found when that bill was passing, even though Wait, BLM sorry, already existed. You Lauren, know? forgive this interruption, but please break that part down real quick. How did say that part again? I might. I, yeah, yeah. How so, did so how did BLM, legalizing marijuana yeah. end up increasing funding to the police? Because you know when when you do recreation, when you do medical cannabis, you don't. Most states don't put an extra tax on it because they say we shouldn't tax medicine, which I kind of agree with. When you do recreational cannabis, they say we're going to tax the heck out of it because we want that money, that tax revenue. Mm. But who gets the tax revenue? The police have gone to every single state that's legalized cannabis and said, hey, you got to give us our cut because we need to deal with people who are driving high because of this new recreational cannabis. And the same people who are so gung-ho in 2014, 2015 around protest Black Lives Matter – they were focused on the federal election. They were focused on uh, these big, uh, high-profile deaths in community, but they weren't focused on the actual mechanics of state lawmaking. So in almost every state that's legalized cannabis, the cops have gotten their cut. And in some cases, in localities in California, police budgets have increased 15 to 25 percent because they are flush with cannabis tax revenue. Wow. And it's one of those things where if you're serious about local politics and serious about defund the police and serious about building with people on the ground, you should have been all over that. But and I got to be honest. This is why it didn't happen. And it pains me to say this. One of the reasons why many people consider M4BL, BLM people weren't there is because big foundations do not fund activists to do cannabis legalization work because it's still federally illegal. And they will risk, they fear risk losing that federal tax exemption by paying people to advocate legalizing cannabis. So this is why we at LBS are so absolutely adamant about why we need independent organizing. Because if you allow a foundation to determine which flavor of defund the police, which flavor of engaging this argument that you engage, you're going to miss absolutely critical conversations that you can't engage in because of the limits of nonprofit status. So when working class black and brown people hear defund the police, they actually disagree with the statement, not because they believe that police are great, because they don't trust the people advancing the argument to actually be there and committed to enforce the alternative. So if you want to shift that polling number, which is like defund the police only have like a 25 percent popularity amongst black people themselves. If you want that number to increase, you should not have more woke Twitter threads. You should not do this sort of big, abstract, sort of emotional sloganeering that we see on national media. You have to go into community and actually engage people on these questions of who are the violence interrupters? How do we pay for the violence interrupters? Who controls that institution? Who trains them? We have a couple hundred now. We're going to need a couple thousand if we want to actually replace the police. Who's going to do that? Hopkins School of Public Health, University of Maryland School of Social Work? And if the answer is no to them, who are you going to present as a grassroots alternative? These are questions you don't have to answer if you want to go viral on Twitter. But you do have to answer if you want grandma in Baltimore City to believe in defund the police. And right now, that's not where the conversation is. Wow. Um, again, listen, so for those who may not be aware, this is one of the main reasons why I have for a long time wanted to support and do whatever I can to support Leaders of Beautiful Struggle the analysis, the, uh, the the combination of analysis, experience, grassroots involvement is unparalleled, uh, and independence, Black independence is unparalleled. Um, almost don't even know where to go next, in, in, <laughs> other than, uh, you know, uh, um, 
other than to maybe specifically ask what is LBS doing that you would like more support from yep. so, you know, the rest of us to, to I guess, circumvent yep. the more prominent groups getting mm-hmm. all the funding and attention for doing the work that mm-hmm. isn't actually being done. So, so I'm going to hold off on that to a little bit later. Okay. Because what I want to do before <laughs> then is talk about the conversation that I think people are afraid to have because they think it's not strategic or they don't know how to have it which is the conversation about actual crime in our communities. Because I don't think people have been serious about how serious a problem violent crime is in our community. There are lots of great answers to defend, defund the police from this question of won't crime increase. But the answers that have been dominant in the national media discourse have been absolutely terrible. They are stock, simplistic answers that work fine if you're convincing white liberals to be guilty and believe your argument, but they don't convince regular working class black people because they have legitimate concerns. They need more. So the answer people give is, first, um, police most of the time aren't doing enforcing anti-violent crime. They're doing traffic stops. They're doing you know stop and frisk. They're doing property issues. They don't actually deal with violent crime most of the time, and violent crime has been declining in most of the country. That's it. That's the best answer that a lot of these people who are being held up as the paradigm of this analysis can give you on what about violent crime. The problem with that is if crime is decreasing, people will tell you they think it's because police have a deterrent effect on violent crime. So even if violent crime is low, they say, yeah, because the cops are there, they deter crime. So we need more cops. So, so So that argument just isn't deep enough to deal with people's real concerns and their assumption around the theory of deterrence. The theory of deterrence is wrong, but you have to actually read like criminological data and criminological analysis to explain why the theory of deterrence is wrong. So in big cities like Baltimore, people think the cops are stupid. They are not afraid of the cops. They believe they can do whatever they want and they won't actually get caught by the cops. If they do get caught by the cops, they believe, first of all, no one's going to testify against them. And second of all, and this is important, cops are so dirty that when the cases go to trial, A lot of times the cops that do the police work can't testify in the cases because they have dirt on their records so that if they get called to trial, the defense attorney will rip them a new butthole because they'll claim that these people are dirty. They've committed crimes as cops. Their analysis is inadmissible. So the first thing you have to do to convince people that you have a strategy to deal with crime is actually police accountability. Because it's not until the police are accountable to the community do they actually have the ability to do the one thing that you might actually need to do is deal with this very small segment of people who the community themselves deems as a problem. But they don't have any trust that the cops will deal with them until the cops are succumb to the power of the community through community oversight. That's the only way you're ever going to get information to make a good case. And honestly, you also need witness protection. If you do have someone testify, like I've heard people say, man, what that what he did was dirty. He shouldn't have killed that kid. I almost want to go to the cops, but I don't trust them and I'm not safe if I do that. So you need witness protection to also deal with that. Obviously, we all know that the majority of issues of violent crime are not super predators, are not drug related. They are incidences in community that spiral out of control because of misunderstanding, fear and the lack of information. Think of it like two nations who are at war. I have a nuclear weapon, in this case a gun. They have a nuclear weapon, in their case a gun. I don't want to nuke that nation. I don't want to kill that brother or sister, but I'm not sure that they don't want to kill me. So the vast majority of incidences of violent crime 
oftentimes these misunderstandings that spiral out of control for a lack of information and people being afraid that I don't want to push it too far, but I can't trust that they don't want the smoke. So you need people who are credible people who can actually ferry information back and forth between these two entities to diffuse that information and prevent it from escalating to violence. And that's what violence interrupters do. So the violence interruption movement plays a critical role in actually dealing with the actual root cause of violence in terms of the misunderstandings that trigger people, no pun intended, into a violent crime. So that's how you actually deal with crime, violent crime in the short term. Obviously, long term, you have to do the massive investments in job programs. You have to do the massive investments in Black people dealing with the cultural legacies of slavery that make us turn our internalized self-hatred on each other. And only funding Black people in our community can do that. But lawmakers hear that and believe that. But then they'll say, look, I need something that can work short term. I only got two or four years elected and all that black cultural revolutionary stuff I actually might like it. Maybe they don't. Maybe they do. But I can't prove that's going to work in four years to get the crime rate down. So whether you believe in that incentive structure or not, you have to show people that you actually have a plan to engage in building up the systems that can deal with violent crime. And fortunately, there's great chronological evidence that says this stuff works. Safe streets have been proven to deter violent crime and almost everywhere it's been applied. Now, what you got to do is you got to liberate violence interruption from the white academic industrial complex and put it in the hands of the community. That's a separate talk. But these are the conversations we need to have. How do you go from 100 violent interrupters to 10,000? Who is getting paid to do that training? Because honestly, it should be people like Baba Adamola in Baltimore, African-centered people who know African-centered visions of human development. Right now, it's not. And to the extent that violence interruption has failed, it's basically because they haven't funded it enough and they haven't made it culturally competent enough. So these are the debates we have to actually have to prove to regular people, oh, wait, so you're actually telling me I don't need cops to prevent violence? It's like, yeah, you don't. But why aren't the people who are supposed to be making the defund the police argument saying anything that I just told you? In part because uh, I feel admittedly somewhat overwhelmed uh, by all of this data and information. But I want to just make sure I'm not missing maybe what is uh, uh, the more easily identifiable and long running consistent problem, which is, again, the the. First of all, the concept, the idea, and we just spoke to Daruba bin Wahad about this. It's so fascinating. I mean, the, the idea that we need money from white philanthropy for black people to become free. Uh, and he mm-hmm. reminded everybody that, you know, since the Panthers are always brought up, that the Panthers ultimately really didn't get much money from certainly none from institutions and and really didn't get much money from outside the community, certainly not as much as people uh, overestimate. Um, but there is this idea that that this is the only way people can sustain themselves with a career uh, while nominally participating in a, a, a quote unquote freedom struggle. I'm wondering, since one of the questions that came up already um, is, uh, let me just pull it up real quick, because I think it it, it it would be a nice, um, uh, this question here uh, about adopting the model of LBS and the Baltimore Safe Streets program. Yeah. 
one yeah. thing, so what, what I wanted you to talk a little bit about, if you can fold this into your, your next round of comments, um, or at some point in this conversation, talk more about the model LBS uses for funding uh, activism mm-hmm. uh, uh, that, yeah. and then talk about whether you. can this be duplicated elsewhere. So with the people who are making the defund the police argument who are gaining prominence and getting a national platform, this is not the entirety of the so-called movement for Black Lives. It's a very diverse movement. But the people who are getting a lot of the ability to frame the argument there are a couple of things happening. First of it, it's not only the money. It's the social conditioning and it's the way people have been thought to think about their community. Because everything I just said, you would know if you had a practice of being in space with working class black and brown people as they grapple with the questions of violence in their communities. None of this is because I'm so freaking smart that I was able to do all this research and figure this stuff out on my own. The reason I was wanted to do the research and understand where to look is because I talk to people who talk to people who like have been in situations where they were a victim of violence or a perpetrator of violence and to a substantial degree or also like working class black and brown people like people in community associations who like I don't want the cops beating up my son, but I also don't want the kids on the quarter to beat up my son. Anybody who works with working class black people. This is what they do every day is deal with these questions to a substantial degree. The people who you see on TV talking about defund the police, don't deal with this every day um, because they have been taught that the way they can get ahead and get a profile is mastering the academic language, going to the conferences, again, going to DC, talking about national politics. And again, it's not just the money. It's people have been taught through their conditioning in the academy and their so-called activist training that that black people are so damn bad and or are so regressive in the way they think about the world that the institutions they have built are not worth organizing in. That I have to basically evangelize to black people my new woke version of how they should liberate themselves and they gotta come over to where I'm at. As opposed to me going to them, learning from them, adding my skills and research and analysis to what they have and figuring out how we can move together. To a substantial degree, what we call organizing it's kind of like disorganizing because <laughs> it's assuming that you have to basically pluck out particular people from the current black civil society and bring them into whatever movement you got going on, whether it's the communists, <laughs> defund the police. These are all ideas that have versions of themselves in black civil society. But people, again, not just in the academy, but also in terms of like activist training, like the Sololinsky model. They're taught to really have this kind of extractive relationship with black communities that you're basically parachuting in, training them on your talking points, mobilizing them for one particular issue, and then you get a victory and you move on, as opposed to doing a deep organizing model that builds with people as they are, builds with existing institutions. And people, first of all, they don't give you money to do that (laughs) because that's not what they want. They want campaigns around their policy agendas as opposed to deeper forms of organizing. And also people don't want to do that. Like if you're a young black person and you're going to working class black communities talking about defund the police and a radical series of uh, intersectionality, old black people are going to probably look at you a little bit crazy and they're going to try to stun you or darter you a little bit. And that's annoying when you feel like you've worked really hard to be smart and know what you got going on. So it's easier to go to the conferences. It's easier to go on Twitter. It's easier to go to D.C., and take that route, then they have to actually learn from those people who've done that work, 
who actually know the people who are surviving violence or done the violence to know what works and what doesn't, because it's so much easier to exist in the academic space. Because again, you're not going to get held to a high standard, and you're going to feel like it's going to be easier for me to make money doing what I've been trained to do for people who I know have money, as opposed to doing what we do, which is build an economic model using the social capital we get from the Black working class community as a reason for people to invest in us and to allow us the freedom to do the work that we do. Like we don't really take, we do fee for service, we do grassroots fundraising, we have you know a version of what you could call Patreon monthly donations. What we don't do is when a foundation wants a bill passed, they usually pay nonprofit organizations in the community to hop on their bill. We basically write our own bills <laughs> and we have the freedom to do that because we can do fee for service contracts, we can do consulting, we can do research, but our actual advocacy is our own. We made a very intentional decision to, it's not like we never take grant money, but only take grant money when it's in line with an imperative idea that we choose to push forward, not someone else's idea. And that can sound like fine, granular nuance, but it really is like everything when it comes to the model of what you have to do to survive as an organization. So that's one part. Uh, um, uh Hey, look, you're a live, live time running activist organization. People are going to come and go. There's no problem with that. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, um, but part of what, what what I hear you describing is also, but, but by also doing what you're talking about doing to, to one of the points you've raised as well, <clears throat> you may maintain a degree of political autonomy, but there is this price to be paid in terms of who are the perceived spokespeople of these issues. Uh, there is this issue of popularity that, that um, correct me if I'm wrong, could, could be seen or could potentially uh, uh, mitigate some of the, the effort or work you're trying to do. For instance, every time I look up, knowing you all a little bit at least, uh, over the years, I, when I look up and I see other voices more prominently placed to have conversations, whether it's local to Baltimore or just nationally around these issues of of, of police violence, you know, black life, et cetera, I get frustrated. And I recognize that sometimes this is a result of these people taking, uh, you know, foundational positions mm -hmm. and otherwise who get more prominently placed. So, so mm -hmm. this, anyway, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I would. I feel I feel the same way and it annoys me too sometimes. But one thing I've realized is that historically, this is a dynamic black people have had to deal with. And so much of what you don't see is actually more important than what you do see. Because you got to remember, again, don't have the capitalist media, media trick you into thinking you're thinking about what's happening in Baltimore. So there's a lot of like us talking to community associations, us talking to the Association of Black Social Workers, us talking to uh, addiction specialists, us talking to harm reduction specialists. We do that stuff every day, but none of that's ever going to be in the media, right? So it's that work that we do building those relationships that gives us the social capital so that a lot of the people who you see in the media, they can't push a bill on Annapolis, but we can because we actually have grassroots credibility so that the people who drive votes in working class Black community we don't give donations to lawmakers, but what happens is that the people who have the juice in those districts say, are you listening to LBS? Are you doing what they say? And this is the OG who did um, you know, uh, minority contracting, 
uh, because of what Perry Mitchell did back in the day. This is an addiction specialist. This is a Catholic preacher. This is a, a Jewish person. If you have relationships with all those people and they say, hey, are you, hey, lawmaker, are you doing what LBF said? That's a level of credibility that has nothing to do with whether you're in the New York Times or not, right? That's a level of credibility that has nothing to do with whether you're actually on Roland Martin as much as you feel like you should be. And that's what we've chosen to put our time building those relationships, which again, is the not glamorous way to do it. I mean, to me, it's the more intellectually interesting way to do it, which is the fringe benefit of doing it this way that people don't seem to understand, is that I'm actually free to think up the best answer for my people. I don't have to care what some academic theorist from Northwestern says, how I should talk about the issue. Because that academic theorist from Northwestern doesn't affect how I eat. I can choose to use their stuff if I want to, but I'm free to figure out any answer I want, which is the best answer for my people. I don't have to care about the academic or media orthodoxy about how I should talk about defund the police or any other issue. So what I lose in exposure, I gain in freedom, in mobility, and in actual grassroots credibility, which is actually a good trade-off. But we've been taught to think that you're losing so much by not having access to, you know, doing a TED Talk or having access to that national media space. You actually have to give up a lot to get there. And we just want to show people that's another way to do it. That's another way to actually do this work that actually allows you to embrace your curiosity and creativity as opposed to having to spit the party line and you don't control the party. Look, I, I certainly know there's a, a media and journalistic equivalent of that in the sense that that uh, uh, many of us with with uh, uh, less viewers and followers and so on and whatever subscribers often would like to make the point that the lower numbers we reach, we have a greater impact and are able to say more freely uh, than people who have more cookie cutter approaches that are easily digestible and popular and, and admittedly reach greater numbers. But with what impact? And, and if we look at the world, obviously, it's not you know going in the way we would like. So so uh, I get that as well. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, not the federal level. I mean, like I said, federal politics is <laughs> most of us are socialized to understand the political world, not just through federal politics, but specifically through the mythology of how we're taught to think about the civil rights movement. So, you know, we joke about it. People like us, you know, the pe- the story people are told is. Rosa sat down, Martin stood up, and the white people saw the light and saved the day, right? And people like us radicals joke about that, but a lot of people believe that. And they believe that's how you actually make change in the world. So we're taught this, you know, really insane story about the civil rights movement, and that impacts everything we think about politics, where it's like if we just show them our suffering, if we just show them our humanity, eventually we will get concessions. We all know Derek Bell, interest conversions, Cold War politics. It's way more complicated than that. But I think because people get seduced into federal politics and it's just it's just sexier. It's what you see on the news. And like I said, it, it's, it's what gets you retweet. It's, it's what gets you viewers. We don't understand the, le- the leverages we have at a state and local level to actually build up our own independent political institutions and that it actually works the other way around, that you have to build up at the state local level if you ever want to actually have a federal impact, right? And so, you know, I feel pessimistic about federal politics and I know that Annapolis is a tough space for anyone who believes in justice and freedom, but I've seen enough come out of Annapolis and City Hall because of the work that we've done that I have a little bit of hope that we can continue to make progress at that level. It doesn't. It didn't really matter to me who was president. 
like, I know that sounds crazy, but my work of liberation continues no matter who the face of American imperialism is in the White House, right? So the hysteria about Trump is scary if you live in the media world. But if you actually are working every day with Black folks, you don't have to have the media make you think you're thinking about politics by freaking out over Donald Trump. You can actually live in a more embedded relationship with these questions of defund the police, these questions of how do we build up a system of public safety on a local level. That's doing work with Baltimore ceasefire. That's doing work with, like I said, Baba Adamola. He has, he's an African-centered elder who has been instrumental to people like me who does rites of passage with people who are victims of violence. So he goes to them when they're in the hospital, shot, stabbed up, says, look, you got to go back on the street either get shot or stabbed up again or shoot or stab somebody else up, or I can take you to an African Sand Rights of Passage program. And it's understanding people like that who have a system methodology of African-centered human development, it gives me hope that we can actually deal with the questions of defunding the police and actually deal with violence in our community that I would never have if I was obsessed with the federal government politics or the national conversation of defunding the police. So I, I would just really push people to believe in the possibilities of navigating the imperfections of the world around you as opposed to being, like I said, Kwame Torre being seduced by national media into thinking you're thinking about your people's struggle by adopting these big meta narratives around federal government politics, because people think they're helping doing that. That's the important thing I want people to understand. Like I get that, but we've been conditioned to think of morality in a really sort of abstract way. I think about Marimba Ani's work around rhetorical ethics, where the purest ethical statement is the purest abstraction. So people gravitate to the reparations for slavery. We gotta go straight to reparations for slavery. We gotta go straight to, you know, massive federal jobs programs. Because that's the only thing that's really gonna save us at a big scale. And they think that the most ethical thing is to obsess over that, to obsess over those like meta-level massive abstractions. And they think they're helping their community by doing that. I think Kwame Ture, or by me, and the black radical tradition is asking us to think of it a different way, is to express our thinking through doing with the people around us at state and local level for us to actually build the political power locally, to be able to actually push for something like that, because we've organized ourselves locally to actually have federal power. And your approach, if I'm hearing you correctly, is to uh, uh, advocate this position to the people in the community as opposed to debating or arguing with other uh, members of the activist community? Or is it both and? And in part, I raise that question because something that is a struggle for, for all of us for a long time is to what extent are people making a conscious choice to, to move in that political direction because they will get funding and fame and attention? Yeah. Uh, uh, how do you suss that out or how does your approach uh, suss out those differences? I mean, we've had conversations with folks behind closed doors and, you know, I think folks will say, I agree in principle, but then they oftentimes go back to doing what they know because it's really scary when you have student loans and you live in an expensive city or your mom or dad has medical bills. It's like, how can I pay that? So capitalism has really disciplined us into believing there's no alternative, but doing what they say do. So I, I try not to get too emotionally frustrated when people do what the capitalist system allows them to do because people are human, you know, and, you know, we've talked about this a little bit, but that's the activist crowd. We'll do some of that work behind closed doors. We'll occasionally, you know, have public conversations, 
but not designed to like go at people or change their minds. Because like I said, it's hard to make someone understand something that paycheck demands they don't understand it. But people who are looking for an alternative, people who maybe are aspiring to do activism but don't know how to do it, knowing they have a choice. So working with young people to show them they can do it differently than what they see on TV. And working with the folks who, like, you know, five years ago, some people said, you know, y'all wild, y'all crazy. And five years later, it's like, oh, yeah, I really respect y'all. Let's 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 build. I want to do what y'all doing. That's that's basically what happens a lot. And, you know, it doesn't mean that they on, you know, team, you know, uh, F the foundation world forever and never. Amen. We all got to be strategic about how we live. But that's how you build and grow with people who are victims of oppression. You know, it's don't beat the people, teach the people kind of thing. And similarly, just working with people at a grassroots level, working on issues where we can deliver. I mean, we've talked about, you know, the Baltimore City Children and Youth Fund. This is a continuous fund that invests in uh, youth programming in Baltimore that we've really helped advocate go to more Black-led grassroots organizations as opposed to more big box, white-led, white-supported nonprofits. And people see that. And when people see that, they trust you. To say, oh, if you're saying defund the police, that means something different than the person who I, I don't never see, except when the cameras are around, using a bunch of big words talking about defund the police. So it's it's building that base through supporting, you know, people doing addiction services who don't really have a lot of money and are looking to do it through an African-centered lens. People who are doing different forms of uh, advocacy for use that don't really feel like they have support. And by being consistently available and showing up on those issues, that again, in the meta level analysis of white supremacy, we are conditioned to think that's irrelevant. But in terms of showing up for your people and building a political base, it is doing that work that gives you the possibility to have bring those people with you as you push for more radical revolutionary policy because they've seen you, they've seen you deliver, and they trust that you're actually thinking through how to win the political battles and how to implement these changes. So like I said, it's it's hard <laughs> to do what people are claiming to do. And you need to actually sell people that, yes, I'm going to be there for the, a decade to go from 200 violence interrupters to 2,000 violence interrupters. And I'm not going to allow it to be co-opted by the nonprofit industrial complex. I'm not going to let Hopkins School of Public Health tell me that the experts on stopping violence for Black people. Because I know a lot of OGs in the community say, you know, these are my enemy. It's not just the police unions. It's also Hopkins School of Public Health because they're telling me my program is not evidence-based. They're telling me that all the money should go to what the white people call the best practice for evidence for violence interruption. And I think it's BS. I think they're stealing my ideas. So to be able to show up and be available for people like that, it's just a different level of credibility. So um, as we start, I guess, to steer towards, uh, uh, you know, an unfortunate end to this conversation, but I, I want to just make sure, first of all, I want to know that you lay out everything you, you wanted to come here to lay out, but uh, and forgive me if this is uh, inspiring some sort of repetition, but I want to just make sure we can identify a few, I don't know, for me, clarifying bullet mm -hmm. points. So, for instance, how do we, how would somebody quickly assess whether whether the uh, local activists in their community calling for defund the police are headed in the right direction or not? Like, is there is there a particular... Uh, platform plank or, or claim or, or warning flag 
uh, and then and then maybe more in, in the process of answering that, clarify what what is LBS doing toward the end of defunding the police that mm-hmm. is maybe specific to Maryland, but also might be something that could be picked up nationally. So that, that's a really big question. I don't think it's one overarching answer to it. Okay. I mean, do they have a serious answer to people's concerns about deterring violence? I mean, I think that's just my biggest criteria. Mm. Like, they don't have to do it the way I did it, because I've been working on that answer for like seven years. So I'm not holding people to my standard, but I'm just looking to hold people to a standard beyond. Well, actually, most cops don't d- deal with violent crime most of the time. It's like, come on, give me something more than just, you know, the boilerplate Twitter response, because that lets me know that you've actually been in community with working class black people and you've been accountable to their concerns that you can answer that question. So do you have a track record of like proving you can successfully pass laws and make changes at a local level or have you been vetted by or have pull with people who do? I think that's one critical criteria because it doesn't mean that you're in the pocket of a local political machine. But if you are serious, you should have people who actually understand the local political landscape be able to talk about their relationship to you and your relationship to them. So that's one part of it. I think the second part of it is, do you actually have a theory or a history dealing with the economic and the human social service sector components of a defund the police argument? Because when people say, you know, uh, here's a red flag. Don't do police, do social workers glaring red flag because social work is super duper racist <laughs> in terms of separating black saying, families, right. pathologizing black families, black social workers are consistently saying, Hey, the white, the white people who run this field are using this as a way to essentially discipline black families for not being normative and ignoring the structural racism but, but that Lawrence, leads them to like struggle. But Lawrence, the first Twitter response I can imagine being said in response to that is, but social workers don't show up with guns and tasers and DMT yeah. and whatever else is being They don't in. need guns. I mean, what, what they have is so family but, but separation. It, they but, have the, the foster care system. They have the structural violence of liberal white supremacy, which in the moment isn't as spectacular or terrifying as a person with a gun, but long-term structurally locks us into dependence on a system that fundamentally views us as inhuman. And if you actually have a liberatory practice, you'll see the violence of like family separations through foster care as in line with the violence of separations through a cop's bullet. And people who can't make that connection are showing me that they've been deeply impacted by this by the spectacular suffering of police violence, but haven't sought through the systemic analysis towards actual comprehensive liberation. I just, I, I, for again, I, I fully agree. Bias admitted, but, but I just know being in not as much as you, but being in enough of those spaces uh, over the years, I just can hear it. Yeah, and, and it's, it's not, it's not that social workers are. But more specifically, they're going to couch it in the black working class language because they're going to say something like, "I just heard in response to my critique of uh, of voting for Biden just the other day, somebody." Uh, prominent in the movement said to me, uh, well, brother Jared, the people in my neighborhood are, you know, in, in the context of this conversation, they're being killed in that spectacular fashion and need that immediate redress. And I would rather them 
get put into the slow motion process, uh, death process of the state, then wiped out immediately in the street because then maybe we can intervene and save them later on. I'm just saying, I, I, I yeah, know, yeah. I, yeah. It, I just, it's not either or, it's both and. It's like, okay. yes, social workers, but only if we control who trains the social workers, right? So we need to deal with, we should, we should run the social work ecosystem of a black city. Mm. Like that's, and if they disagree with that, then they're showing that they have some sort of vestigial relationship to whiteness where they either think we can't do it or they're terrified of the possibility of taking power away from like, you know, their, their well-heeled, well-spoken academic friends who run social work departments. Because again, it's like, yeah, obviously cops responding to mental health crisis are bad. We should control the ecosystem of what is the nature of the alternative. And again, I think that's where the differentiation comes in, in terms of having an understanding of community control that actually believes that working class black and brown people can operate, control, and run the institutions that govern their lives. Unfortunately, a lot of our black uh, professional friends, whether they know it or not, they don't believe that's possible. And that's just where we're going to have to disagree until we prove to them that it is possible by just organizing, loving them out of the way where we can, or organizing around them or through them if we have to. Let and, me ask and that's you, the reality. Yeah. No, uh, yeah, yeah, um, go ahead. are you including uh, uh, counselors, marriage counselors, family therapists? Uh, uh, you know, one of what you know, somebody's asking um, or saying, "Don't let workers, don't let social workers have the hegemony on families." Is is? Oh yeah, is, no, no, absolutely. The, what yeah. we call social work in America comes from essentially. Um, a white racist vision of essentially civilizing black people into Eurocentric white norms. Like that's what social work comes from. You know, that's um, Katie Stanton, that's the United Way, that's the history of social work. So we need to fundamentally deconstruct the social work frame because its fundamental assumption is the deviance of black people needs to be forced into compliance with sort of, you know, Eurocentric heteronormative family norms. And it's the logical conclusion to really any anti-racist analysis that says, you know, that's messed up. But people won't make the logical conclusion, which is like, okay, we should run the institutions that do social, what we call social work in our community. Like we should be able to give the University of Maryland School of Social Work a mandate as to the forms of social work that we deem reflective of our desires as a community and our cultural relationship with African people. Like, you know, I could give you tons of examples about how that looks in specifics, but other people are better than I am at that. So I would just tell you, look at the work of someone like Jerome Sheely and his work around African-centered uh, human social services. And a lot of people have been talking about this like forever. Um, but that's what I mean. The question is that form of work does not get funded by foundations usually because that's a threat to their friends in the academic community. It doesn't get the sort of cachet that doing a big march for a dead person in the street does. But but when I talk to people like myself, honestly, I just got robbed at gunpoint last year, other victims of violence in our communities, they say, yeah, violent crime, but how I wanna deal with it is we need to rebuild our community full stop fundamentally reinvest in our communities let us control it and our versions of victimhood our personal experience our standpoint epistemology seems to always go away in the face of a version of victimhood which gives people an excuse not to deal with the fights that are uncomfortable to them 
People are comfortable fighting the police. They're not comfortable fighting their friends in the academy, their friends in the foundation world, their friends who have this basic desire for anti-racism, but really stability as <laughs> their definition of anti-racism. Revolutionaries don't want chaos, but we want to destabilize the system of systemic white supremacy at every level, not just policing, economic, social work, comprehensively. And so I just get really suspect when I hear someone get really in-depth about the suffering of one dead person in the street and not the system of white supremacy that is systemically causing us to slouch towards a, a slow deracination and decay comprehensively in our community. And again, people don't believe that you can fight intelligently and win reforms if that is your meta frame. They've been taught that that's impractical, unpragmatic, and quixotic. But again, capitalism will have you think you're thinking about your people, but you've not been engaged in those material struggles. You don't actually know it's possible or pragmatic. People told us that we would never stop O'Malley's youth jail. It was impossible. People told us we would never control the youth fund. It was impossible. And at every step of the line, we've had to show people what they thought was impossible was possible. But again, that's why you won't hear about the things we're doing at a local level, because it challenges people's assumptive logic about the common sense theory of politics that someone like Obama gives you. Right on. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, first of all, shout out to Brother Tafari. Shout out to Dylan Rodriguez. Thank you all very much. Uh, uh, Suzette, my, my dear sister, thank you very much for, for coming through and all of you. Uh, 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 definitely. And I definitely want to echo the sentiments of my brother who's off the off the record all the time here, who, who's texting to say that we, we we're glad you made it through that armed robbery and sorry to hear that. And, uh, you know, and and I will also just add for myself, I'm glad that it's not um, weakening your analysis. Uh, yeah. And, and that's what I mean. Like, it did. I'm just saying, you know, exactly. uh, and that's the thing, like, you know, it's it's hard because I have to choose whether I even want to mention that. Because there's such an obsession on personal experience, part of me wants to just say, focus on the data, focus on the analysis. But I know it's like I've had a lot of experiences like that, and we all do. We choose not to lead with them, but I also don't want to exclude that. Because, again, there's like an archetypical victim of violent crime who often gets held up in the defund the police conversation by the Obama types, where it's like, oh, tell that to somebody who got a gun pointed in their back. And it's like... I got a gun pointing in my back. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, you know, and it's like, part of what I feel like, like yeah, sorry. <laughs> you know, brother just got out of jail. Mm -hmm. I, I wrote about it in a piece about why I don't support the spy plane. Because again, especially in that spy plane in Baltimore, they constantly try out these victims. But when it comes to victims like me who didn't report my armed robbery because I felt like wasn't nothing good when they come out of it, sending him back to jail, he would just come out even worse, rob somebody again. And it's like, you know. I can't go through the whole details, but it was kind of like he had to walk me around downtown because he wanted to either get cash or get me to buy something he could sell. So we ended up talking. And he like, yeah, you know, they don't got nothing for us. I just got out. I'm trying to feed my family. I'm not trying to rob you. And, you know, I'm like, yeah, brother. It's like, yeah, here's some people you might want to talk to. So I had to, like, build a relationship with him and part because of my safety, but also because it's like, yeah, it's like this is a human being suffering through a really traumatic experience. People who have never I've, I've never been to jail. But one thing I understand is that jail is really bad. <laughs> so we have millions of people coming out of jail who, you know, are, we are thinking about these issues of violence outside of the context of the horror that is the systemic racism and violence of things like the prison industrial complex, you know. And having an ability to do a political analysis 
that can bring the systemic to the personal and like contextualize that horror in a way that lets people say, I understand that horror, but the only way out is through. We can't run away from that terror, either through funding more police or acquiescing to the system of social work, which would also criminalize this person, which would also take their kids away, which would also deem this person to be a threat because maybe they use substances to survive the trauma of being in jail. Like, I don't see a difference between the two. And that's not a revolutionary form of abstraction that actually embedded human experience with that suffering that says I have to be serious about reorganizing all these systems. And again, you know, if you look at the history of Black people, we've been successful in meaningful ways despite violent racialized austerity, building up institutions that can actually serve our community. And that is a Black radical tradition that is very, very, very much deeply stomped on, not just by the conservatives, but, but by the white liberals. They want you to believe that only through the, only through the progressive reformers, only through the, the white liberals supported nonprofits does redemption for Black community come through. And if you want to convince working class black and brown people you have a political agenda that can actually meet their needs, you have to fight both of those things just as hard. That's right. Let me uh, I just say, you know, I, I, um, I find it harder to share uh, autobiographically more and more because of the levels of disingenuousness, I think, are, are accompany most people's self reference when they make these points in, in these contexts and that a lot of the times the self reference to experience is meant as a, 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 a canard or a trope yeah. to block someone else's critique. Uh, let me, you know, I, I left Tafari's question up here because I know it's specific uh, to something you can address. Uh, I wanted you to, 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 if you had anything on the thoughts of, of Brandon Scott. Um, um, I mean, we've known him for years. We know a lot of the people close to him. We have our own agenda. You know, we've agreed sometimes. We've disagreed sometimes. And, you know, it's it, it's meaningful, but you know, there are fundamental forces that though we have a strong mayor system, until you deal with the institutions that drive so much of the infrastructure of the city, who is mayor is meaningful but not essential to the work that we're doing. So there are forces like the downtown real estate developers. There are forces like the people who run the human social service sector, and dealing with those people, it can be useful to have an ally in the mayor's spot, but our whole point is to build power so that we can leverage whoever is in that seat to push an agenda that's more in line with our theory of justice and freedom. So I don't know what's going to happen, you know, but I have hope in the organizing that we're doing to convince whoever the decision makers are that it is in their interest to accede to our agenda because there will be political consequences if they don't. And that's the way we have to carry it. It doesn't matter if you're friends with these people or not. It doesn't matter if you knew them when they was 15, 20, 30, 40. Everyone has their own institutional influences that they're balancing. Money, power, connections, prestige. It's complicated. So you only can do what you can do to build your base and leverage whoever is in that position. I hope to have a good relationship with the incoming mayor, but our agenda is going to go forward regardless. Uh, similarly, do, do you, do you, um, uh, I, I, I feel like your answer somewhat already addresses this, but, but, uh, Tafari was also asking about, uh, 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 the younger Lumumba in Jackson, Mississippi. Yep. Uh, and, and what, uh, frankly, uh, you know, from a, a number of, um, 
grassroots and radical uh, sources that I engage on a regular basis have been kind of disappointed in what's yeah. going on down there and, and his relationship to the broader Democratic Party that has emerged. Yeah. Uh, but but what do you all? I, I think that's complicated. I think I don't have all the information sure. to make an informed analysis of that in depth. I know that we've worked with people who've done work down there. So Rakia Lamumba and mm-hmm. the work that she's done with participatory budgeting real participatory budgeting, like teaching people about the budget and seeing what they want to do with the whole budget, not here's a couple of million dollars, do some pet projects, participatory budgeting, which is what, quite frankly, white people want to give to black people and tell them it's participatory budgeting. So actually doing that with the whole budget, we learned a lot from that for our work with the youth fund. So I know that's not Mayor Lumumba per se, but that's the so black civil society around him, influencing him and pushing him to accede to more radical demands. So there's a lot of good stuff happening down there. But what I know is cities are subject to the whims of the state government and the financial markets. And when I say there are forces beyond the mayor, that's largely who I'm talking about. Because most people don't understand that like every city a decision makes deals with the fear of what happened to New York in the 70s. I would recommend people watch the documentary um, Hypernormalization. Um, which de- what actually shows the footage of when New York tried to s- basically get the financial markets to support their city spending. And financial markets were like, no, we're not grant- we're not giving you any loans. You're bankrupt, basically. And what's and this is, again, this, I know we're running out of time. If you have a pan-African analysis, you can understand what happens to African nations in terms of structural adjustment, in terms of the IMF and World Bank, is happening to black cities every day. In terms of the nature of the spending of black cities is subject to the financial markets. And if they don't like it, they will jack up your interest rate and they'll make it hard for you to be able to afford any of your expenditures in your city, which is exactly what they do to developing nations to discipline them into cutting social services, cutting education and doing the forms of investment in like real estate extractive industry that they deem is profitable for them and their colleagues in finance. The exact same thing is happening to Jackson, Mississippi. Happening to Baltimore, Maryland, happening to every city, whether it's black run or not. So that's the thing. Austerity and microcosm. Yeah. So even last, last thing, part of the reason why, you know, we have to go deeper, because if you defund the police in Baltimore, who's going to fill in that gap? It's going to be Johns Hopkins. Mm. And then Johns Hopkins is going to do a public-private partnership with the police department. And the police department is going to become even less democratically accountable because Hopkins has so much money and they have no public accountability whatsoever. And the reason they're doing it that way is because police is largely a function of the real estate state because police are designed to secure property value for like high value real estate near Hopkins. So if we don't understand the larger system of financialization and the nonprofit industrial complex, even if you defund the police, if you don't have democratic control over the budget, they're just going to get the money from Michael Bloomberg. And then Michael Bloomberg will be running your police department. And that's the level of nuance and understanding that I'm asking young advocates to understand that even though they have good intentions, unless you are fundamental about dealing with the comprehensive power relationships embedded in policing, even your best laid plans are going to open up space for forms of co-option that you don't even see coming. But some of the elders around you may be able to give you some insight on. So the hope is, you know, pan-African, intergenerational knowledge exchange so that people who have a genuine desire to learn and do better can begin to be precise in our demands to rebuild not just public safety, but the entirety of our civic infrastructure.
we'd like to thank Dr. Jared Ball for his work with HamixWhatIlike.org. If you haven't yet, please go check him out on YouTube during the pandemic. I think Dr. Ball has really stepped up his content game. He's doing a video seemingly almost every day with some luminary figure in the Black Academy or activist world. So again, that's HamixWhatIlike.org. You should check him out on YouTube. We'd also, of course, like to thank all of you out there listening. This has been a trying year for us, along with, I think, many folks out there. I think all things considered, we consider ourselves very lucky here at Legions of a Beautiful Struggle and the In Search of Black Power podcast family as well. It's been trying, but we hope to continue to bring you content that really tries to give context to as we try to do today, the national media conversations and uses the experiences of scholar activists like ourselves and many of the folks that we work with to try to add, I think, really needed context to some of the conversations you might be hearing on national media. It seems like now more than ever, we need grassroots expertise being injected into the critical issues of our time. So we're going to continue to try as best as we can to do that. And Coming into 2021, we are going to continue, as best as we can, to continue to go in search of Black power. See you in the new year.